Good morning. We are in a series called Subversive Unity, um, Kingdom Vision for Our Present Chaos. And we're talking about unity for two reasons. Um, one, we are in an incredibly divided time. Um, we had a contentious Supreme Court vote last week, and next Tuesday there's an election that everyone's been waiting for. Um, and the second reason is that Jesus talks about the importance of unity. Now on the front end, let me just say that um, this call for unity is something that has at times made me deeply uncomfortable. And I say that because um, often when we hear about unity, it's in the context of leaders in the church trying to, trying to push back against folks in the margins being able to share their viewpoint. Right? Whenever we, we've heard calls for unity, it's, it's normally in response to victims of systemic sin sharing their perspective and churches being quick to say, don't talk about that, just focus on unity. And don't talk about racial injustice or the history of racism in our country's history. Let's, let's focus on unity. And what we want to say during this series is that this is not the unity that we're pursuing. This is a shallow unity that glosses over injustice, and that's not what we're after. What we're after is a subversive unity, and what do we mean by that? Um, it means the kingdom of God catalyzing um, a movement of healing among God's people that causes them to see God more clearly and to more passionately sacrific- and sacrificially serve the people around them. And last week, Pastor, talk- Pastor Craig talked about our united hope. Next week, um, Devlin will speak on the united truth that the kingdom gets behind. And this morning, I get to talk about our united opposition. Our united opposition. I'm reading from John 17, uh, verses 9 to 15 this morning. Um, and, I'll, and I'll talk about this united opposition in two parts. First, the church's alien identity. And second, um, humanity's universal enemy. So first, the church's alien identity, and second, humanity's universal enemy. Um, We'll start with the first. Let me just read these verses for us, verses 9 to 15. Jesus is praying again, as Pastor Craig taught us last week. He's about to be betrayed, and he starts praying to the Father, and, and his apostles, John specifically, is eavesdropping on him. And, and because John eavesdrops and commits it to memory, we get to eavesdrop along with John and we get to hear what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus prays this. He says, I am praying for them. And so this is an important section because this is where Jesus starts interceding. He starts praying for those who follow him. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. This is verse 12. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I'm given them your word and, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I, as I am not of the world. I do not ask 
that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's a repeated phrase in the last three verses that describes the, the core identity of who the followers, of what the followers of, of Jesus are. And did you catch it? It's this phrase, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I mean, this is a phrase that pastors all over the country are trying to explain to, um, to, to all the Christians in their churches right now. What does it mean for us in this American democracy that seems to be in the midst of turmoil and chaos, what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus um, to be not of the world just as Jesus was not of the world? Um, and in my short translation, I think of what it means to be not of the world as Jesus is not of the world as this. Jesus seems to hint that we, as followers of him, are supposed to be an alien breed. What do I mean by that? It's almost as though we ought to exist with a strangeness, a holy strangeness that points to the reality of a radically different and radically beautiful world. It's, it's supposed to be more radically beautiful than the world that we see, that, that something about the way we occupy space in this world hints at the fact that there's an even more beautiful world out there. Um, and this is the core of our identity, that we're supposed to be carrying this holy, holy strangeness. Um, and if this is our identity, that we're supposed to be alien, an alien breed, what does it mean for our purpose? What does it mean for the task of the Christian in the midst of this upheaval, in the midst of the turmoil? What is, it, what is our calling supposed to be? And I think it, it might have to do with this. In the year 2000, um, in Austin, Texas, there was a local radio show who was, who was conducting just, you know, your normal local fundraiser. And it was a fledgling radio station, and, and a local librarian at Austin Community College, his name is Red Wasonic. I, I definitely didn't get that right, but his, his first name is Red. He, he phoned in to contribute to this fledgling station's fundraiser. And the person who took the call asked him a simple question. They said, hey, Red, why are you contributing to this? And he said, I, I don't know. I think it just, this, this helps keep Austin weird. This, this phrase, keep Austin weird, then became the slogan for this whole town that, that has been their slogan for the last 20 years. And it's supposed to capture this, this rallying cry for a city to push back against a tyranny of commercialization and condos. It became the rallying cry of what the soul of the city, of, of wanting to be a little bit off kilter, a little zany, um, there's, there, there was a rallying cry among the people to, to keep Austin weird, and they put it on T-shirts, and they put it on bumper stickers, and then other cities thought, this is a cool slogan. This is supposed to be a way that we can communicate our unique identity. We're going to say, keep Portland weird. We're going to keep Asheville weird. But the whole thing is that there's, there's something about a strangeness, a uniqueness, an authentic, authenticity um, that, these, that these unique people within a subset of geography um, had begun to claim. And it's almost as though when Jesus says, you know what, you're supposed to carry as a church this holy strangeness, this task that I give to you even as I leave and depart is that you're supposed to just keep it a little weird. And often we do what we can to make Christianity more palatable. 
We try to explain it away as anything other than just a little weird, but what we have to remember and sort of understand is that this carries a sense of the power that we're supposed to live with. There's a holy strangeness that reminds God's people that we're different than the rest of the world that's grabbing for power or that's scrambling to secure what's theirs. And the Apostle John gives a sense of of what this holy strangeness looked like then, and I think it's pertinent for what this holy strangeness, this alienness, could look like for us now in the midst of our present moment. I want to boil it down to, to two vignettes from the Gospels, one from the, from the Apostle John, the other from the Apostle Matthew, and two acts that was just counter to anything that that world then or the world now um, seemed to ever expect or understand. Two, two counter-cultural acts. The first, um, God's people are foot washers. Jesus, in John 13, gets on, on, his, on his knees and does the task that the teacher was not supposed to do. Verse 13 to 15 say this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you should, you should also should do just as I have done for you. This first century world where people used sandals or walked barefoot all around sandy roads, and it was Jesus who got on his knees and started to wash his disciples' feet, a servant act, upending any sort of structure or hierarchy about who was supposed to be the one to do the menial tasks. And he says, you, as followers of me, as a community, you will be known by the way you washed each other's feet. Um, a buddy told a story. Um, he, he hates feet. He just, there's something about it that at the thought of feet just makes him want to hurl. It was this gross thing for him, and, and there was a joke that him and his then-girlfriend had that he hated feet so much, she would say something like, you only love me down to my ankles. You, you, don't, you don't love my feet. You don't love all of me. And so when he decided to propose, what he did was um, he led her through some sort of maze, and at the end of it um, was him waiting with a bucket of water um, down on his knees, ready to wash her feet. And what he said when he did this was, Um, I am ready now for for the rest of my life wanting to put your needs before mine. Um, Even all the things that I find dirty and a little, you know, hurl-inducing, I'm willing to give up because I am willing to sacrifice my needs for yours. What must our king be like that he reverses power dynamics, washing the feet of his most stubborn followers? a people following in the name of Jesus, carrying a holy strangeness, first and foremost are foot washers. Second, we're not only foot washers within the community, but outside of our community, we're, we're also enemy lovers. Um, Matthew 5, verse 43 and 45 says this, you've heard that it was said, Jesus speaking to, his, to those who would listen to him, saying, um, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Um, there is an incredible amount of tribalism both out in the world and in the church in this present moment. It almost does character clearly doesn't even matter anymore as long as that person is on your team. And the challenge that we're given in Scripture is even, um, even as we feel strong feelings for those who we think have nothing but ill in mind for our country and our communities, what we're called to do in this present moment as followers of Jesus is to be enemy lovers. And if, you, if, and if that's not strange, or does not feel strange in the midst of every, all the discourse in our present moment, I don't know what does. Arthur Brooks says this, Moral courage is not standing up against people with whom you disagree. Moral courage is standing up against people with whom you agree on behalf of people with whom you disagree. And this holy strangeness that the people of, of God are supposed to have, that within the community they're foot washers. There's no hierarchy. They're just people serving other people other followers of Jesus. And then outside of the community, they're enemy lovers. Um, sacrificing themselves for people who, who clearly disagree with them. What would it look like for our church to carry this holy strangeness? Would this alternative world seem more compelling to a world that currently does not believe in Jesus? And so that is our alien identity. But not only do Christians have an alien identity, all of humanity, in this passage that we find in John 17, Jesus talking about humanity's universal enemy. And we start with the question, what are we up against? What are we up against? Um, there's a second imperative in this intercession that Jesus prays. He not only prays that, that the Father would keep us in his, in, in his name, that we, me, we may be one. But in verse 15, Jesus also prays that he would keep us from the evil one. Keep us from the evil one. And the key idea here is that there is a real supernatural evil in the world that may not take the form of goofy Halloween decor, but a supernatural evil at work that, to make you believe that you're not existentially safe. Ephesians 6, verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's this reality that so much of the world right now and the chaos we experience, we attribute to the enemy side, right? You have two sides. And right now, if you're on one team, you say that everything that's wrong with the world is because of the other team. But what, pass, what, what Ephesians 6 is saying is that there's, there are powers and principalities and authorities that contribute evil in the world. And they're the very source of the evil that we see. And the question is, what, is this, what does this evil do? What does the enemy do? In John 10, we read that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. 
And Jesus, in contrast, says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The verse describes the enemy's attempt to penetrate your sense of safety. The enemy wants you to believe that your existence is constantly under siege. The Bible describes a world marked by an enemy who's constantly looking to undermine the flourishing that God has for you. Yet, you know, as modern people, we really struggle with this idea because we do not believe there's an evil one bent on creating havoc in your life and in the world. We scoff at any sense of the reality of a supernatural evil. But, but what happens when we scoff at the reality of a supernatural evil? What we do is we look out at the havoc of the world and consider the ones we disagree, and then we end up demonizing them. But we have to remember that there's a real supernatural evil. And when you feel unsafe, the response that we have when, when, when the siege takes place upon us is we end up spending all our energy consumed by the pursuit to protect ourselves and then to blame our human enemies. And when we spend all our time trying to protect ourselves, we cannot live into the strange identity that Jesus calls us to live into, to live sacrificially for our brothers and sisters in the church and for our enemies out in the world. We can't do that if we feel like we're constantly have to protect ourselves against the enemy. So, where do we find the power to live with this holy strangeness? Knowing that we can feel as though we're constantly under siege by the enemy, how is it possible to live with the boldness um, to step into the life of holy strangeness that Jesus calls us into? And this is where I say, in order to be strange, you have to see Jesus as more strange. What do I mean by that? There's so much about Jesus in Scripture that is not palatable to the world back then and to the world now. There's so much about Jesus that... um, that the world then loved. They loved his miracles. They loved what they gave him food. But then there's this one story in John 6 where Jesus is just killing it. He's, he's got um, followers because he's just fed large crowds of people miraculously. And then they follow him. And then while he's drawing the crowds together, he starts saying things that's, that frustrate whole crowds. There's a strangeness to him. And he says um, in chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews that were listening disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus responds to them, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So Jesus is telling them that in order for them to experience true life, they have to eat his flesh, and they're so confused. They're like, this is so weird. And the people look at him and they say, no thanks, that's just too strange. And they walk away from him. But Jesus turns to his 12 closest followers, and he asks them, okay, do you guys want to go away as well? And the ringleader of the group responds to Jesus and he, and he says, Jesus, who else can we go to? I paraphrase here. But he says, only you, only you, Jesus, can solve the deep hunger of our souls. 
Who else can we go to? Who else can you go to? There is an eternal hunger in you of eternal proportions. It is a hunger that's marked by soul loneliness that all our best art reveals but just can't solve. It's a, it's a hunger that all your past loves have mimicked for tiny moments but cannot sustain. And it's only solved by the seemingly strangest of stories of a God who loved you so much that he became a person so that, it, so that by his sacrifice you might know that he is for you, that his love for you is relentless, that he's on your side. His broken body on the cross proclaims an eternal security that no enemy can threaten. And in this season of chaos, this is our hope, that Jesus has defeated the ultimate opposition. And because of this, in a country led by boastful men, we can embody a different, more alien way, marked by a sacrificial love, not only for our allies, but also for our enemies. This is the way of Jesus, made possible by the strangeness of his love for us. Would you know that love? Amen.